This is James Moore, pastor of New Life Community Church in Kansas City, Missouri, praying this audio message will be a blessing to you. For more information or to donate, please visit newlifekc.com. Well, all right. Well, today I want to kick off just a short mini-series uh, that's going to last the next two weeks. And I want to ask a big question, a question that hopefully you've asked at some point in time and people that you uh, run into might ask. And the question is this, is who is God? Who is God? Now, can we fully answer this question in two weeks? No. Uh, can we fully answer this question in two months? Probably not. Two years? It might take a lifetime or more for us to fully answer this question of who is God, but I can't think of a more important question that anybody could ask or answer than this, who is God? Now, here's what I need. I need us to be engaged today. I need you to be awake, alert, paying attention. Some of you grew up in church, and you remember something before COVID that was called notes. This is where you would take notes, but this also required a physical pen or a pencil, and you would have to jot things down. So there's two options for you today. Well, I went old school. I printed notes for you. Now, some of you are like, I don't have a pen. We got you covered. We got more New Life Community Church pens than we know what to do with. So these guys are going to pass it out. If you want a set of notes, you raise your hand. If you say, Pastor Alex, I am with you on giving on the church platform app. I don't carry cash, and I don't want to have a physical paper. Here's the digital option for you. Right now, this service is being live-streamed online. So you pull out your phone, and you go to live.newlifekc.com, and you're going to see me about 10 seconds behind what you're seeing in real time. Now, don't turn your audio on. But there's a tab that says notes, and all of those notes are there, and you can click into it, type them, and then save them to your phone, do whatever you want. So I'm making sure that today is a day that you remember in church because we tackle in some big stuff. We're starting to ask questions about who is God and how does he impact our life. And so as you guys are getting those, this is so good. Some of you are like, I feel like I'm back in school. This is not, this is not Sunday school. This is better than school. This is where, who knows, maybe, just maybe, God might impress something upon your heart. And as you leave, you've got like a record that you are in church. And then if you're real cool, you'll like scrapbook, which is a thing that happened like 20 years ago. And you'll save your notes and you can look back on the journey that God's taken you on. All right. So here's the deal. We're asking this question, who is God? And if you're taking notes, which I hope you are, God's watching, I want you to jot this down. What we believe about God shapes what we believe about everything. What we believe about God, our concept of God, how we answer the question, who is God, what we believe about him actually shapes what we believe about everything. Your belief in God shapes how you view money. Your belief in God shapes how you think about history. Your belief in God shapes how you approach ethics and politics and biology and psychology and sociology and all the other ologies. How you think about God, what you believe about God, it shapes what we believe about everything. So this question of who is God, I mean, this is really important. Because if you believe that God is sort of like this impersonal force, he's just like the universe or he's karma, then that's going to change the way that you live on a day-to-day basis. And if you believe that there is no God, that all that there is is just kind of the product of some random cosmic chance, well, then that's also going to change the way that you interact with other people and how you live your life on a day-to-day basis. 
And so for just a moment, I gave you a spot on your notes. There's a little box. And at the top of it, it says this. It says, in your own words, how would you describe God to someone else? Now, you're under the gun because I can't wait forever for you to get this done. But I want you just to jot down maybe the first few things, maybe the first three words that pop in your head. If you had to describe God to someone, what are you saying? How are you describing him? Putting them down, jot them down, get some thoughts there, get some feedback for yourself, okay? Now, as we start to talk about this, I, I have to recognize that in the room, there's not just probably people who would say, I believe in God. There may be some people on the scale of belief who say, you know, I don't, I don't believe in God. Or maybe they're a little more agnostic, like, I'm not sure if there's a God. I want to believe that there is. I'm not saying that there's not, but I'm not sure. We have this big scale of belief. And so if you're here and you're answering this question, you're like, in your own words, how would you describe someone, uh, how would you describe God to someone else? Well, if you're a believer, you're going to probably say that God is real. Now, if you're on the other side of the belief scale, you're going to say, God's a myth. That's just made up. It's just a man-made thing. If, if you're over here, you're going to say, um, if God is real, then God is everywhere. But if you don't believe in God, well, God's nowhere, right? Um, God is strong. Uh, people who are over here, they're like, I don't think that God's real. I think the whole thing is made up for weak people, and it's a weak God to help a weak people feel better about themselves. Uh, you might say, some of you are like, no, I have the Bible answer. I read my Bible. I grew up in church, Pastor Alex. God is love. Mm, so good. He's so good. But then the people over here who are agnostic are like, okay, that's cute. But if God is so loving and good, then why did this happen in my life? Why did I lose this person? Why did God allow this evil to occur? And so there's this tension that we have and how we describe God and what you currently believe shapes your description of God. And here's what I think is, I think whatever you wrote down is an excellent answer. If we could go around, I would be like, yeah, that's so good. No matter where you're at on the scale, that's so good because that's what you believe. No, we have to push further. Are you ready? We're pushing further. We've got our little description. We've got some descriptive words. It was really good what you wrote down. But here's the question. Where did your belief that God is like that come from? Like what is the source for your description of God? Now, you can't just give me the church answer. Well, it's based on the Bible, pastor. Okay, because here's the thing. I grew up in church, and so all those little church games don't work with me. All right, so here's the thing. So I grew up in church. You guys know my dad is the pastor. He started the church uh, when I was four. Before he started the church, he was on staff at another church. I've been in church more than about anybody I know. Like, I don't miss church. We used to, man, back in the 90s, there was like Sunday school then Sunday service, then you came back after you went home, watched the Chiefs game, ate lunch, and took a nap for Sunday night service. And then you, you couldn't make it through the whole week without a little bit of extra Jesus in your life, so you had to come back on Wednesday night. Remember Wednesday night? You had like children's ministry, youth ministry, and that wasn't enough because you couldn't quite get all the way to Sunday because there's more than three days that we're going to spend. So Saturday nights, we had to have Saturday night prayer. And so you had to come and pray, and then you'd start it all over again. And then if there were missionaries in town, that was a big thing. We would have a missions week. You were in church every night of the week. Or some of you guys grew up in church and it was like revival week and you brought the guy in and here it is. And all right, so I got a lot of church in my life. So when you say, oh no, my belief about God is completely based on the Bible. Here's the thing. You had a concept of God if you were raised like me before you could read. Before you could understand the Bible, there was a concept of God. My whole life, I can't think of a time I didn't believe in God. And a lot of you are the same way. Like, you can't think back to a time, like, 
that you didn't believe in God. Maybe you have an understanding of when you first came to the realization that you understood God. But the thing is, is that in me, there was this raw belief that God existed, and it wasn't necessarily based on the Bible. Now, some of you would say, well, I heard people who believed in the Bible tell me about it. That's fine. Your original source for your concept of God wasn't the Bible. It was someone else. It was where you grew up. It was the denomination. It was how your parents saw God. There was this raw thing, and you embraced a view of God that may or may not be correct. And now here's the wild thing. There's this thing called confirmation bias. I don't know if you've heard of this. This happens all the time. Um, My wife uh, tried to convince me a few years ago that dark chocolate's healthy. And I was like, okay. I said, broccoli's healthy. Chocolate, I don't think, is ever healthy for you. And she's like, no. And so here's the thing. When you believe something, like dark chocolate is healthy, and you're online or you're hearing doctors, and people say that it's good for you, it has these things, you're like, yes, I have more evidence to believe what I already embrace. And then you throw it in your husband's face, all right? Some of you guys do this. Uh, when it comes to politics, especially those of you in my parents' generation who need to get off of Facebook, uh, because when it's a political season— and something happens, you have this bias, and you're just looking for doctors to confirm what you believe about COVID, or you're looking for scientists to say what you believe about global warming, or whatever the topic is, you have a confirmation bias. You already have a position, and now I'm looking for things to support my position. And in the same way that we all go through life with confirmation bias, we have the same thing when it comes to God that we had this raw thing that we believed about God. We don't really know where it came from. We weren't even conscious that we had it. But as we grew up and as we aged, we began to look for evidence that supported the view of God that we had. And so we dismissed things that didn't agree with it, and we built our concept of God a lot on what we already wanted to believe based on the picture that was given to us. So I would hear the Bible by the time I could read, but I only picked the parts of the Bible that fit with my concept of God, and I wasn't sure what to do with other parts of it, so I dismissed it. You guys do this when you read the Bible now. You're reading along, you're like, oh, this verse is so good, and you underline it, and you circle it, and then the next verse, you're like, I don't know what that means, and so you just skip it, and you keep going, because there's this confirmation bias. I'm taking in what I want to take, and I'm kind of leaving out the things that don't make sense and fit my view of God. So we all have this concept of God that has been formed in us from the time that we had first belief, and we don't know where the original belief came from, but we have shaped it in a lot of ways based upon our own confirmation bias. And then let's go beyond that. There's not just confirmation bias. There's cultural bias. Like, we don't stop and think about the fact that we have been raised in America. We think like Westerners. We don't think like people from the East, the East has got what? What are, they, what are they believing in? They're believing in Buddhism, uh, Taoism, Confucianism. That's, that's where the East is. That the West, that's not where the West is. The West, just based upon how we've been trained to think from the time that we were born, that we don't even know where this came from, we tend to have a leaning towards a monotheistic view of God. Mono meaning one, theistic meaning God. We tend to see a monotheistic version of God. But our confirmation bias makes us think that anytime anybody talks about God, you're talking about the God of the Bible that I believe in. So when uh, we remember the Pledge of Allegiance when you guys grew up, they still say it every day in school in case you didn't know. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the for which it stands, one nation, Under God. Oh, man, everybody's talking about the God I believe in because my confirmation bias says that you must be talking about the God of the Bible, but a monotheistic view of God 
it's not just the God of the Bible because there's Judaism. The Jews believe in a monotheistic God. It's not the same God that we worship because they don't embrace Jesus. So there's a little bit of a breakdown. Oh, Islam. Islam's a monotheistic belief in God. They believe in one God. His name is Allah. He's not the same as the God of the Bible, in case you wondered. They're different. But because we are in Western thought, those things make sense. And so we have confirmation bias. We hear things under God, pledge of allegiance, let's go. In God we trust is all my money, let's go. I think every president at some point in time has said, God bless America. And I'm thinking, he's praying to my God. I love award ceremonies. My favorite celebrities get up, my favorite musicians, and what do they do? I just want to thank God for this award. I couldn't have done it without you. And then they go on to act as though God never did anything in their life, like their lyrics, their uh, scenes in their movies, the language they use. It doesn't look as though Jesus is first and foremost in their life. And in fact, they don't normally talk about Jesus. They just kind of talk about God, this monotheistic view of God. And so in our culture, it's okay to talk about God. We are trained for it. We've been raised with it. It's not that big a deal. And so all of these things kind of form our concept of who God is. And when we come into the church, we sometimes want to act like we don't have a bias, that we are the ultimate authority and we can tell all good and all truth. We are perfect. We ha- our, our sensors are so sensey. We, we, we are like spidey sense. We can tell when something's not right. We couldn't possibly believe something that's not true. Did you know there's a whole TV show that's committed to this idea that we all have a bias? It's a singing competition called The Voice. You guys have ever seen The Voice? What do they do with these people? They get these celebrities, these singers, they become judges or coaches, and they take their chairs and they turn them to where their back's to the stage. And they have somebody come out on the stage that can sing. They're a great singer. But they make sure that none of the contestants can have any bias with them because if they were seeing them, they would immediately, before they ever sang one note, be sizing them up. Are they man or they woman? Are they tall or are they short? Are they, are they thin or are they bigger? Uh, how did they do their hair? What was their makeup style like? What kind of clothes did they choose to wear? How did they walk? How did they do whatever? They would have a bias before they ever got to the judging just simply based on that. And so that TV show, which is awesome, says we're going to try to eliminate bias and make it just about the voice. And sometimes they spin those chairs around and they're like, whoa, I didn't expect that voice to come out of whoever it is. We all have biases The question is, do we recognize that those are in us? Maybe we don't know what they all mean, but we have to at least come to the place of saying, you know what? My filter isn't completely pure. It's not always right. I have a bias, and it affects not only my view of God, but also my view of everything, because what I believe about God shapes what I believe about everything. Some of you are like, okay, this is a lot, Pastor Alex. How many of you guys have ever, like, we'll think about concepts of God. Have you ever talked to somebody and they refer to God as the man upstairs? Yeah, you ever had that? Oh, the man upstairs. Here's what I know if somebody talks about the man upstairs, is that they've never had a personal encounter with God. Because your view of God, if he's just the man upstairs, is like he's this distant landlord. Right? Or, Or he's this absent father. He's not there. He's not close. He's not personal. He's, he's the man upstairs. 
Um, how many of you guys remember a great movie, uh, The Sandlot? You guys remember The Sandlot? It came out in that, man, that was a great movie. That was good. You had, you had like Squid and Ham and Scotty Smalls and Benny Rodriguez. So anyway, if you remember the movie, it was like this baseball. Uh, elementary kids are playing in this field, and on the back of the baseball field was what? Uh, the junkyard, right? And the junkyard was owned by James Earl Jones' character, and then they had the big dog. He was the beast, Right? And so the boys had never really met the owner. They had never really seen the dog. They just kind of looked through a hole in the fence, and they're like, this dog is incredibly big. It's the beast. And so they made up all these stories. They had these myths. They'd have these sleepovers in the treehouse, and they'd be talking about the horror stories of the beast and who the owner was. And, and, and if you haven't seen the movie, it's been out for 30 years. I don't know where you're at. But at the end of the movie, what they do is the boys end up having an encounter with James Earl Jones' character. And he's totally different than the concept they made. And the beast actually had a name. His name was Hercules. And he wasn't that bad of a dog. He just slobbered a lot and chased kids. All right, so, so in the movie, there was a concept that they had built in their head. And they saw things. And they had confirmation bias. And they heard stories. And they built this belief. But in the end, the thing that shook them from their concept was a real encounter with the real man and with the real dog. And it changed everything. My encouragement and my hope today is for us to have an encounter with the real God that might change our concept and let us let loose of some things that we embrace that may not be completely accurate. So let's get back to where we started. What's the question of the day? Who is God? It's a huge question, and it's not easy to answer. We're not going to exhaust it, but we're going to move forward here. Um, I, I told my wife this week, I was standing in the kitchen, I said, Missy, I think I'm going to do a series at church, just real short, on who is God. So I said, Missy, who is God? It's always fun to put your wife on the spot, especially when there's not people around. And so uh, I saw her. Her eyes were kind of like moving a little bit, and she was pausing. And then she saw my four-year-old sitting at the table, and she totally redirected. She was like, Miles, hey, buddy, who is God? <laughs> And so I was standing behind Miles, he was at the table, and I just saw his head kind of cocked sideways, and I thought, oh, I, wonder what, I wonder what the boy's going to say, he's four. And he said, well, Mommy, God is God. And I was like, yeah, boy, that's the subtitle of my message, you got it right. And then Missy was like shaking her head, and she was like, I don't know. She said, that's incredible. She said, when you asked me that question, I just felt overwhelmed. Like, where do you start? How would you describe God? Like, what's the starting point? And for me, my boy got it right. Like, he said, God is God. There's no one else that can fit in the category of God. It's not like there's a comparison or, man, there's a few. Like, hey, if you think about this, that's kind of like God. No, no. He's in a category all by himself. He is unique. There's no one like him, no one ever going to be like him. He holds and resides in that spot by himself. And I want you guys to know that when we talk about God, God is God. It's not a bigger version of us. That's how we tend to think, right? Because we use human logic and reasoning, and we say, well, if God's a higher power, well, I'm pretty powerful. Okay, so I'm pretty strong. So he must be, like, all strong, right? And I'm pretty smart, and so, but he must be like all smart, like way smart. And I, like, I take up some space, like, you know, not a big guy, but I take up some space, but God, he must take up like all space, right? And so then we're like, let's make it sound more sophisticated than that. Let's add Latin prefixes. So he's omnipresent and omnipotent and omniscient. And, and we think, yeah, that's what God is. But wait a second, 
did that originate from like the Bible or did that originate from God or is that just us and our reasoning trying to figure out what a higher power would be like? And of course we can go to scripture and we can make Bible prove anything we want and he may be those things, but is that how he introduced himself? And so as we stated earlier, what we believe about God shapes what we believe about everything. And if you'll all assume with me for a moment that God is real, here's the question, how can we know anything about God? If God is real, this higher power exists. How can we know anything about him? I mean, we can imagine some stuff. We can dream up some stuff. We can make him a bigger version of us. But here's the reality. We cannot know anything about God unless God himself chooses to reveal it to us. He is other than us. He is spirit and our minds can't comprehend it. We're finite. He's infinite. What in the world? I don't get it. We're not going to get it. And so we can't understand him. We can't comprehend him. So the only way we can know who he is, what he is like, is if he introduces himself to us and shares about himself with us. Otherwise, we're just making up beliefs about him. So the good news this morning is that God has introduced himself to us. And we need to pay attention to the introduction. For those of you who like the bottom line of a message, like where are you going with this message, Pastor Alex? Here's, here's the bottom line. Who is God? God is the creator, and he wants a relationship with his creation. Mm, that's pretty good. Good thing that's on your notes. God is the creator, and he wants a relationship with his creation. If you believe that, it changes everything. As you see what's on the screen right now, if that is true, that means that our lives have purpose. It means that there's a meaning beyond just our own happiness. That says that there is a creator, a supernatural being, that wants us to know him and to be known by him. That says that true life and fulfillment in this life is found in a relationship with the creator. If you're like me, you've tried to read the Bible before. Um, like, you know, New Year's resolution, I'm going to read the whole Bible this year. And you don't, you know, normally make it, but you always get through Genesis. And so, um, I don't know about you, I've read Genesis 1 and 2 a lot of times, like almost every year. So, Genesis 1 and 2, it might be a familiar part of the Bible narrative that you've read because it's the opening chapters of the first book of the Bible, and it accounts the story of creation. And although you've read it before, and you're like, okay, God spoke the world into existence, and the beginning was God, and okay, I, I got it. Like, God created the heavens and the earth. He created mankind. He created everything that we see. You're familiar with the story, but what you may have missed is how God introduces himself to us in the opening pages of Genesis. Because he is not only the creator, but he's so much more. And so, as many of you know, the Bible is a collection of ancient transcripts that have been preserved through time. The book of Genesis is a part of what was called the Torah, or the Pentateuch, which was written originally in Hebrew. It was part of the Jewish scriptures. And so one thing that we lose and forget sometimes is that this was written in Hebrew, and what we read today is an English translation of that. And what's the challenge is our languages are very different. And so in the Hebrew text, there's actually, and kind of significant here, two different names used for God in the original text. In Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, 
there's two different names given to God. Unfortunately, in our English translations, when they translated it, the only word we had to define what those words are is just God. So he's just God in both. But I think we lose a little bit of something because in English, we just don't have like a naming system for God, but the Hebrews did. The Hebrews ascribed many names to God, and each name was designed to to represent a specific dimension of who God's character was. You've heard of some of these names. Um, Names like Elohim, Yahweh, Jehovah, El Shaddai, Adonai. If you grew up in the church in the 90s, there was a ton of songs with all those words. Jehovah Jireh, you know, you had it, El Shaddai, Adonai. These are all words that were words in the Hebrew that were words that said this is who God is. And each one of them, they would choose the author of whoever was writing the scriptures, inspired by God, they would choose this particular name because it best expressed one particular attribute of who God is. And this is what we see happening in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and it's really worth us taking note. See, Elohim is the name assigned to God in Genesis chapter 1. And Yahweh is the name assigned to God in Genesis chapter 2. So, so the big question is, well, why two different names? What's the significance? Well, the author is choosing these names based upon what he's trying to reveal about God. So the author uses Elohim in Genesis chapter 1 because Elohim is the name of God that refers to his unparalleled power, his might, his all-pervasiveness. God speaks and the world exists. He's all-powerful. Uh, he's a creator of all things. So, so this word Elohim expresses how big and powerful and mighty God is. But then, as we go into Genesis chapter 2, the author changes what word he's using for God. And instead of the all-powerful, big, mighty God, he uses the name Yahweh, which is a name that refers to God as being a covenant maker. And in order for there to be a covenant, guess what? There's got to be two parties. All of a sudden, we're not Elohim where God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants. Wait a second. No, no. Now this is a God who's in relationship with us, and he's actually in a binding agreement. He's a covenant-making God. The author utilizes this name Yahweh because in Genesis chapter 2, we see God for the first time personally interacting with Adam and Eve. This idea that God is a covenant maker in relationship with humanity, it it requires the term Yahweh. So, So think about this. In the very first two chapters of the Bible, we read that God is not just all powerful, Elohim, but he's also very personal, Yahweh. And we're asking this question today, who is God? Well, he is powerful, and he is personal. He's not just one or the other. He is both fully at the same time. So in Genesis 1, we see God's works emphasize what God can do, but in Genesis chapter 2, we see God's heart emphasized and who he is. In Genesis 1, God cosmically declares his abilities and sovereignty in the universe. But in Genesis 2, God personally communicates his intentions and his heart for the universe, especially for humanity. So when we open the Bible and we read it and understand that God is introducing himself to us, 
We read that he is the maker of all things, but he's not detached. He's not an impersonal deity. He's not like, a, like what a deist might believe. He's a covenant-making God who's made himself near to us and even bound himself to us in a covenant. And so that covenant that he makes in this uh, scriptures that we see in Genesis, we see culminated with Jesus on the cross in Calvary, where Jesus, as God, part of the triune God, would bear the penalties for our sins so that we could be reconciled to him for eternity, that we could be adopted and made part of the family of God. Pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. The author of Genesis is intentional about what he's saying here, and he is painting the picture of a beautifully powerful but personal God, something that we ought to take as a frame for the rest of the Bible. So who is God? God is the creator, and he wants relationship with his creation. Now, if you're thinking at all, and you're like, okay, I got you. Who is God? He's the creator. He wants relationship with his creation. But Pastor Alex, how does relationship with God work? I can't see him. I don't know how that works. He's kind of, you told me he's other than me. He's spirit. How, how can I have a relationship with him? Like, how does God have relationship with creation? Well, I don't think we got to worry about how God can have a relationship with us because God can do anything. Probably what we should focus on is how can you and I engage in relationship with God? How do we position ourselves? What do we do in order to connect to God? In the first century, after Jesus' death and resurrection, there's this man named Paul. Paul had a lot of writings. A lot of those writings ended up into our Bible, especially in the New Testament. It's pretty awesome. Um, good portion of our Bible, Paul. And here's the thing about Paul. Paul grew up as a Jew, which means he grew up with this monotheistic view of God. Now, he was greatly shaped by the Jewish culture of his day, the Pharisees and the beliefs and the rules and the practice and the religion. And so he had this concept of God. Paul did. And, and, and so with his concept of God, he was actually killing Christians. He was actually persecuting people, all in the name of God. And all of a sudden, he had this encounter with God, kind of like the boys in the movie Sandlot. They had an encounter with the real Hercules. They had an encounter with the real James Earl Jones character. Paul had this encounter with the living God, and when that happened, it completely changed how he viewed God. His concept of God, he realized, wasn't right. And so he flipped everything, and he realized, if I can get it wrong, then others can get it wrong. And so he committed his whole life to helping people change their concept of God. So he would go on missionary journeys. He would go and say, I'm going to go to these people because I don't think they got it, and I want to help them see God correctly. One of my favorite stories in the New Testament is found in Acts chapter 17, and Paul ends up in Athens, Greece, which Greece is awesome because that's where the Olympics come from. So Greece, they are where we have all the mythical gods. We got Zeus and Hades and Hercules. We have all those things. We're getting Hercules a lot into this message. That's kind of interesting. All right, so Athens, Greece is where he ends up, and they are like philosophical debaters there. And so as he's walking through, they're also idol worshipers. He's recognizing all the idols that they worshiped. And so in Greece, they didn't want to leave any god out. So they're worshiping the God of the harvest. They're worshiping the God of the sun, the God of rain, the God of everything. And so as Paul's walking through, he sees an altar, and he's like, I wonder what this altar is for. What God, what idol are they trying to worship? And in the altar, it says, to the unknown God. They so wanted to cover their bases, they're like, there's probably a God we missed. So let's make some sacrifices and make sure he's happy. 
And so Paul ends up there, and he gets to have some great conversations, but they end up inviting him up to this place called the Areopagus, which is Mars Hill, and all of these philosophers, all these smart thinkers start showing up, and they're like, please explain to us this God that you speak of. And Paul goes down this journey of saying, you know what, I saw that you're worshiping an unknown God, and he does this really cool thing and says, I want to tell you about the God that you don't know. The God that you want to worship, but you don't understand who he is. But let me explain him to you. And as he begins to reveal who Jesus is, part of what he does is he says that God is the creator. What we're talking about, he says he is the creator. And he goes on to say this. This is so cool. Acts chapter 17, verse 27. He said that God did this which is saying God created the world and put humanity in it for this reason. God did this so that they would seek him. That those that God created, that they would seek him and get this, uh, underline this, and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he's not really far away from many of us. Why did God create the world? Why did God create us? Why do we exist? That's the question everybody wants to know. God created you so that you would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him because he's not far from any one of us. If you feel far from God, he's not far from you. Friends, God is near to anyone who wants to reach out to know him because God is the creator, and he wants a relationship with his creation. But again, how do we reach out to an infinite God who exists outside of space, time, and matter? How do we do this? And the answer to that question may surprise you. See, the answer to that question is a practice that Christians have participated in for generations. And here's the practice. It's known as silence and solitude. What is silence and solitude? Silence and solitude is a spiritual discipline. It's when we simply make space to experience the presence of God. How do we reach out to God? How do we connect to this infinite God who created us? I don't understand. This is the answer. Silence and solitude. You have to make space in your life to experience the presence of God. And I would contend that without this, if you're not practicing silence and solitude, then you're probably not living a very spiritual life. Silence and solitude is a big deal. And, and I want to challenge you this morning, this is my challenge for you, is to begin to practice silence and solitude in your life. You doing it on your own, making space to experience the presence of God. Now, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not very good at this whole silence and solitude thing. Um, this message is probably as much for me as it is for you. The, the idea of taking time to be alone and quiet, to turn off the noise of life seems impossible because I'm just so gosh darn busy. I don't know where I'm going to fit it in. When am I going to do that? And am I going to really be focused? Am I really going to be present or am I just going to be thinking about my to-do list the whole time? And so I've heard this preached in the past. I've heard preachers, you know, push like silence and solitude, you know, and I'm like, in my head, I'm like, sure, you know, I'd love to take time out of my day to spend quietly with God, but I don't have time for that. Now, I would never say it out loud, but that's what I was thinking in my head, like, I don't have time for that. And then this preacher, this one time, God bless his soul. He asked this question. He said, what in the world could be more important than you hearing from God today? 
I couldn't think of anything. I had a whole bunch of stuff on my to-do list, but none of that stuff was as important as hearing from God today. And I found myself pushing off, not hearing from God today so I could get some stuff done and feel all accomplished, and then even having the nerve to say, God, help me get more things done today. And he's like, why would I help you do more things? You don't, do you think I'm here to serve you? Do you think I'm here at your beck and call to make your life easy? I don't think you've understood what this is all about, son. What could be more important than hearing from God today? See, I don't think that there's anything more important than connecting with God. So this is the challenge for you. You came to church, you got paper, you got to take, you got you to be ready for this. You got a reminder, you got something to put in your house, in your car, wherever you need to be. Here's what I want to encourage you to do. For the next seven days, would you create space to experience the presence of God every day? Because what could be more important than hearing from God? Here's what that could look like. Maybe you read the Bible. Maybe it's just the verse of the day. You read a verse. Maybe it's a chapter, whatever. It doesn't matter how much. Maybe you just read a little bit of God's word and then have the confidence and the courage to pray these seven words. This is something that we're doing in the life group that I'm a part of. Seven words that could change your life. This is taken from Samuel in the Old Testament. It just simply says this, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Would you be willing to pray that? Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And then, here's the trick. You got to listen. Okay? So here's, we're going to start easy. Okay? I'm not saying, oh, man, you got to spend an hour with God every morning. No, no. Just get your phone out and set a timer for five minutes. Just five minutes. You're making space for God. You're practicing silence and solitude. You're going to give five minutes of God without any distractions, without anything going on. If you've got kids, you're going to have to find a time early. You're going to find a time in the bathroom. You're going to find a time somewhere. Silence and solitude. Put in those noise-canceling headphones. All right, you're going to find that time, and then you're just going to be still before God. And the whole idea is that we are creating space in our life for God to show up. And here's what I believe. I believe if we give God that space, I believe that he will fill it. may not look like what you want it to look like, but I believe that he'll fill it. It's not complicated, but it's not easy. You're going to get distracted. It's okay. There's another prayer you can pray. God, forgive me. (laughs) I'm going to try again. For your servant is listening. Sometimes you're going to experience an impression on your heart of exactly what you need to hear from God. Sometimes it's going to be through the Bible. Sometimes it's going to be through just a thought that pops into your head that would never have came from you. Sometimes maybe your phone's going to ding and you're going to be distracted, but it's going to be a text from a friend that sends a message to you at just the right time that God used in your life. I don't know exactly how God's going to move. I'm not going to put him in a box. He does some wild stuff in the Bible, but would you create space to meet with God? Silence and solitude. If you will simply make space for God, I believe that your relationship with God will get stronger and stronger every day. And the stronger it becomes, the more you're going to learn to trust him, the more you're going to be able to discern what his voice sounds like. It's not audible. Sometimes it's louder than audible. But you're going to begin to also learn how to quiet the noise in your life. So, as we wrap up, will you do it? Will you make space for God? It'd be great if you did it forever. I'm just asking you to do it seven days, five days, 
Um, five, five minutes. What is that, 35 minutes? Can you give God 35 minutes over the next 168 hours? Seems like a small request. And what if God just meets with you? And what if you heard from God this week? What could be more important than hearing his voice? I can't think of anything. So would you bow your heads with me? If you're here today and you say, you know, Pastor Alex, I don't feel as though God is near to me like that verse said. I know you said that God's near to all of us. He's not far. But in my life right now, I felt as though God is far. And I don't want him to feel far away. I I, I want to sense a closeness with him. I want to have a renewal in my relationship with him. If you say, hey, that's me, would you just do this real quick, just as a sign to God? Would you just raise your hand and say, yeah, that's me. I felt like God's kind of far, and I, I want to have a, a more vibrant relationship with him. I want it to be more alive. It, it just doesn't seem like my prayers are going anywhere. God, Lord, you know everyone's story. You know what's going on in their life. And God, you know the ones that are truly distant from you and the ones that are feeling that, the ones that raised their hand that had an outward sign that says, you know what, I'm not just going to think this thought, but no, I feel that way, and I don't want to feel that way anymore. God, I just ask that you would meet them where they're at, that they would have an encounter with the living God, and that, Lord, that they would sense who you really are. I ask, God, that you would introduce yourself to them and that they would be able to let go of anything they believed about you that's not true. Lord, I pray that they would have a truth of who you are and that it would completely transform their life. And so, God, I just ask, Lord, for those that have felt far from you, Lord, may today be a day of drawing near. And, Lord, your word says in James that if we draw near to you, that you will draw near to us. And so, God, I believe that today is a day that, Lord, there's a relationship between you and your people that's being warmed. Now, God, I want to pray also for those of us who have maybe just not even recognized that we're distant from you, but we're so busy that we haven't even thought about you. In fact, we've been ignoring you. We've just been going through life not thinking a thing about you. God, I pray that you would help us to have a self-awareness to see how we're spending our energy, to see where our focus is. And God, if we're distracted and we have blind spots, Lord, I pray that you would reveal those blind spots to each of us because, Lord, ultimately, we need to hear from you. There may be others of you in the room today that said, you know what? I don't have this relationship with God that you're talking about. I hear that you're saying that God's the creator, but I've never really stepped over the line of faith and said, I'm gonna be a believer. I'm gonna be one of those Christians. And if you're here and you're like, you know what, I've not made that step yet, but I want to, would you just raise your hand real quick and say, yeah, that's me. I'm ready to step over that line of faith. I'm ready to go there. I'm ready to be a part of what God wants. That's awesome. For those of you who are in the room, I want you just to have this moment to make these words your own. And if you're online listening and you're wanting to step over that line of faith, I just wanted to have you just pray a simple prayer and just say in your own way, God, Here's my life. God, here's my life. It's not mine anymore. It's yours. God, here's my life. God, thank you so much for loving us, being patient with us. Help us this week to make time for you. And Lord, may we experience you. May we be tuned into who you are. And God, may we be closer to you a week from today than we are right now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. For more information, please visit newlifekc.com.